Hello and welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin. I'm an executive editor at the Mises Institute. And sitting in for Tho Bishop today is our senior fellow, Mark Thornton. And uh, Mark, of course, has been doing a lot of work lately for the Mises Institute with his own short podcast, which I certainly recommend you tune in. These are only generally about five or six minutes long. Uh, the Mark Thorne podcast with just a, a quick update in most cases. And Mark, what is your podcast called again? Minor Issues. Minor Issues. So Yeah, yeah. We, we, look, <laughs> we look at things that nobody else is really paying much attention to and showing why there really should be and why they're really important. And as I say, this doesn't require much time on your part to uh, check in every week. And it gets you just an Austrian view of what's going on with employment and GDP growth and all those sorts of things that uh, might be mentioned in some corners of financial Twitter and places like that. Uh, but Mark's going to provide you with a concise breakdown of maybe how uh, Austrian, the Austrian school provides us with some, some better insight on those topics. But we had him on, I don't know, six weeks ago or so. And I liked that episode, and I thought, you know, we should make sure and have Mark on at least quarterly uh, just to talk about what's going on with the economy. So he's back today, and I just decided to look into some of the issues that have come up and which I think uh, are, are a good opportunity to really cover some of the the Austrian issues on, on timely stuff that we're seeing appear in the news and which Jerome Powell talks about in his Fed press conferences and that sort of thing. Uh, but one thing I think that we can just start with is the issue of the dollar. The U.S. dollar is the global reserve currency. Now, this kind of out of nowhere, like it's a topic that comes up every now and then, and certainly it comes up on our website, especially every time there's a crisis, a financial crisis. Uh, but it's usually been ignored or it's just kind of brushed off uh, by people who talk about the dollar and those sorts of things. So we're generally told to ignore it. But a couple of weeks ago, just simultaneously, both CNN and Fox News decided to just start talking about, hey, the dollar's going to lose its, its uh, status as global reserve currency. And China's going to take over America soon because the yuan is going to surge and become the new global reserve currency. And we've run some articles to that effect. But I, I want to make sure and get your view on this, Mark. Like, and, you know, I'm asking you to speculate. I'm not uh, – we're not asking you to predict anything that we're going to come back and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and berate you about or anything like that. But just, you know, if you just had to guess – what I mean, how accurate are these predictions and what's the time frame here? And really, what should be people be taking away from this whole discussion about global reserve currency? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, the first thing is that it was a giant surprise that people were talking about it at all. Uh, certainly, it's discussed within Austrian circles, but it's very rarely mentioned in the media, in the press. I mean, they stay away from this as much as possible and the idea that this could be a topic of conversation in the mainstream media and on Twitter um, is just remarkable. I think it is a sign of the times though. I think that there are certain factors uh, regarding our inflation, uh, our dollar, uh, our conflict around the world, which is an important contributing factor. 
But the U.S. dollar has been losing its status, um, first with the downfall of the gold standard, uh, and then slowly but surely the uh, reserve status of the dollar, its holdings in uh, foreign central banks uh, has been declining. Its role in international trade has been declining uh, over time from very high levels, but still on the decline. And so it's a relentless process that the U.S. is going through losing this very valuable status uh, of the dollar as the preeminent currency. It's, it's faltering because of our own actions, uh, inflation, uh, our foreign policy. Everything goes into the mix in terms of downgrading the dollar over time. And certainly our national debt, uh, the, the, uh, the crisis uh, with balancing the budget and, uh, you know, all the rest, all of this goes into a soup that shows a steady decline over time that continues to this day and maybe is even accelerating uh, when we look back on the numbers. Uh, but it's important that this has happened several times in history. This happened uh, to the British. Uh, it's happened to empires of the past where monetary decline eventually uh, ushers an empire out the door. So eventually these foreign policy considerations become the driving force and you see a rapid decline fall off in the status and somebody else or something else resuming as the preeminent uh, monetary system in the world. So it happens very, very slowly uh, like, a, uh, like an ice, uh, <laughs> like an iceberg uh, or like, excuse me, like a glacier uh, moving slowly, slowly. Uh, and then it gets to the precipice and war breaks out and conflict breaks out. Um, and in, in the end, the, the empire falls and the, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it turns into an iceberg. It falls into the ocean and it's swimming out there with every other currency. So uh, this is great that it's made the, the media, it's made the news. Um, I think it's something that we all should be concerned with because it's it's really created tremendous benefits, uh, at least for our government, um, and it's made the expense of the empire easier to bear on all of us citizens. So it's something that um, it's out there, it's coming, it's not here yet. Well, and one thing that that many writers have noted, or noted, especially Brendan Brown here on Mises.org and uh, Daniel Lacaye, is that the dollar benefits from the fact that all these other central banks aren't exactly doing a great job themselves in terms of protecting their currencies. It's not like there's some great gold-backed currency out there you could flee to and use to just replace the dollar. So if the dollar is in decline, then where where are people going? What what are they trading in their dollars for? Well, it is a competition and all the other competitors have, you know, just fiat currencies. So uh, that's the competition at this stage. Uh, you see some central banks sort of resisting this whole process, but it's very painful. Uh, you know, if you didn't go along with a zero interest rate policy, if you didn't go along with quantitative easing, 
your currency greatly appreciated and your export industries got hammered. So everybody's in on this and, you know, looking the other way, uh, what you see is individuals, businesses, uh, you know, turning towards alternative monetary systems. They're turning to gold and silver. Uh, their central banks are, some central banks are adding to their uh, gold reserves, uh, people, individuals, uh, companies and industries are turning to cryptocurrency. So we know that there's a problem out there. The uh, In the business world, they'd be entrepreneurs, but these people are monetary entrepreneurs uh, looking for and hoping to build an alternative monetary system with better characteristics uh, than the stupid, failed fiat currencies. And, and so I think you do see some bright lights out there. You do see, you know, crypto, Bitcoin uh, coming to the surface. It's had a lot of problems lately, as we expected, but it's not going away anytime soon. And, uh, you know, interest in uh, owning precious metals is, uh, is increasing. It was right on the front page of the Wall Street Journal that uh, searches for owning gold and silver are up. Uh, sales of gold coins are up. Um, and as a matter of fact, they're um, uh, outselling production. And, uh, and so there's a lot of interest. You know, you see the problem in the media and you know that entrepreneurs are are trying to address the future, and they're they're out there serving that need, uh, that uh, desire for uh, protection. Because if if and when, and it's really a matter of when, uh, the dollar loses its status, and uh, this will cause uh, big big drops in the value of the dollar, and the people on the leading edge want to be protected against that. So they've turned towards cryptocurrency. They've been learning about that. They've been acquiring that. They've been learning about uh, owning gold and silver, and they've been acquiring uh, gold and silver. The premiums on those things are are up pretty substantially, which indicates uh, a supply and demand imbalance in favor of demand uh, buying rather than selling. So uh, those underlying indicators are there supporting that story of the dollar losing its reserve status. Yeah, it seems at the very least we've reached the point where you you can't be complacent about just holding a bunch of dollars anymore, right? So you could see why people would be searching out some alternative. Maybe they haven't settled on what that is yet, but you stick 10 grand under your mattress you can't be sure that it's going to be even worth 75% of what it's worth now, even just a year or 18 months from now. And so that's a lot of money lost. So, yeah, it makes total sense to try and at least hedge that somehow. Um, unfortunately, the other central banks of the world just making it, aren't making it easy for us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we and have you to know, search I, hard. I, I, and I think that reading the news now and in the recent past and going forward, I think you're going to hear and read a lot of stories where an underlying feature in the stories is people are reducing their demand for money. They're, um, you know, people want to save against the uncertainties of an economic crisis, but at the same time, they're not as interested in holding dollars. 
Uh, and so individuals, uh, companies, you see individuals reducing their personal savings. Um, you see companies making investments uh, now, spending the money now, building inventories now. Um, and it's not quite explained away by other features other than the fact that businesses and individuals and institutions don't want to hold as much money uh, as they used to. So I think that's an underlying featuring, feature that will help you understand reading the news going forward. Well, and I think part of the reason that people seem uh, reluctant to really discuss the situation as if it is a crisis, because you still see that with a lot of people. Certainly there's the cautious people who are really seeking out alternatives already. But if you look in social media and you, you see reports about job losses, for example, there's always lots of people in the discussion saying, oh, well, this is just, this is, let's say Disney lays off 4,000 people like they did the other day. Um, oh, well, this is just a small percentage. Uh, otherwise, all these people will immediately find other jobs. Everything's fine. The job market's never been better. And so there's certainly still a narrative out there that everything's fine. And I think a lot of what that's pinned to is the job numbers. Because, of course, you and I can look and see lots of places that point toward recession and manufacturing or the yield curve, all sorts of stuff. But Jerome Powell and lots of other people keep saying, hey, look, the job market's strong. All these people have jobs. There's a labor shortage. So in spite of all of the of, uh, almost a year now of interest rate increases and what we're seeing as slowing economic activity, how long is it going to be before we start to see these job losses start to really pile up? Or are we already starting to see it in the anecdotal and sort of the headlines and it just isn't registering yet in the official numbers? What's the story there? Well, the story in the media, as you point out, is they try to do a positive spin on everything. It's bad news is not good for their ratings on Bloomberg and The Wall Street Journal and CNBC – uh, they want a positive uh, story going forward. And so they're always massaging the story for its positive features uh, rather than the cautionary negative features that the same story holds out. And so it is true that the, the job market today is pretty strong the number of job openings has fallen a great deal from like 14 million job openings down to 10 million uh, job openings. But the normal range on job openings is less than 5 million. So we're still way above that no matter how you count them. Uh, and if you look at some of the individual sectors, uh, you see jobs holding up in a number of different areas, including construction. So there, there are some positive lights, but if you look below the headline numbers and you look at, you know, some of the areas in job openings and jobs themselves, you see a predictable pattern of uh, job openings holding up very well in things like dis defensive industries, not the defense industries, but the industries where investors consider them defensive. So the toothpaste companies, uh, those sorts of things that we're going to buy no matter what, are holding up very well. Even uh, durable goods are holding up well, which P 
people are willing to spend are continuous are, are continuing to spend money and even go into debt to buy durables uh, because they want to get rid of their cash. You know, that's what I mentioned before. They're they're willing to get rid of their cash on uh, durable goods. We're seeing jobs holds up uh, holding up in the mining industry, which. Uh, reflects uh, strength in some of the commodity areas. Uh, Low-skilled jobs are holding up. Uh, so there are predictable areas where jobs are and job openings are holding up pretty well. But if uh, you look at non-durable manufacturing, it's down significantly as we expected from the bubble that occurred there uh, after 2020, 21, 22. Uh, there was a, a 150 percent increase in the number of non-durable manufacturing uh, jobs in 18 months in the United States, and that's fallen uh, precipitously uh, in 20, late 22 uh, and in 2023. We're uh, quickly going back to normal, uh, a normal level of non-durable jobs, but. Um, you know, finance, banks, insurance, real estate, the job openings in those areas have fallen off uh, considerably. And uh, one area that's holding up, uh, in addition to the low-skilled jobs that I mentioned earlier, uh, defensive sectors, is art and entertainment. So, you know, I know that some people, I actually was asked by a couple of people who plan to take their kids to Disney World, and they heard about the job cuts. And I said, well, they're not going to cut the jobs at the theme parks. They're actually producing revenue right now. Where Disney is cutting jobs is in content creation and development and technology and non-performing areas and, uh, you know, the actually the big ticket jobs in many cases. Uh, but the actual people who are performing for us uh, in the arts industry, entertainment industry, uh, the, the hourly workers at Disney theme parks, uh, those jobs have held up and job openings are available. Well, of course, you can see that in other industries too, right? Say McDonald's cut a bunch of their corporate jobs. And of course, it would be kind of crazy to cut a bunch of people who actually make hamburgers because that's your source of revenue. So they're, they're cutting those people who aren't on the actual production line is what seems to be a common theme in a lot of these job uh, losses. They're, they're people removed from the final delivery of the product. So you can see, hey, you need revenue, right? You got to deliver something. So it seems the same thing that applies to Disney. And this goes along with the Austrian business cycle theory, too. You know, during the bubble, uh, during the problem phase, companies tend to add in more high-paying jobs that are finance and technology related. You need experts in those areas to take advantage of all this inflationary finance and manipulation by the Fed. Uh, you need these high-salaried people. Um, but the low end of the income distribution doesn't benefit at all or hardly at all. And then when we get the correction or the recession, as we're starting to see right now, uh, you know, the low income, the people who actually do the work, 
uh, that feed us, that clothe us, that take care of us, that fix our stuff, they're going to have jobs. And uh, so they're doing okay. Their markets are are okay. They're suffering from price inflation, but their job markets are doing reasonably well. And the people who are getting uh, corrected are at the higher end. And uh, so we're seeing people, you know, in banks and finance and Wall Street and technology. There's been layoffs um, in most. And there have been significant layoffs in most companies that are media tech related uh, that saw the drastic bubble develop uh, during COVID and the Fed inflation of 2020. Well, that's a perfect segue into my last question for you then, is often we mention at Mises.org the issue of malinvestment and how, well, the, the problem with what the Fed is doing isn't right now that they're letting interest rates go up, the problem is that they created this bubble beforehand and created this malinvestment that now, when it does finally correct itself, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. And so the question is, what does, and you've, you've already partially answered that just right now, is what does malinvestment look like right now? I think we kind of figured out what it was in the last cycle. So in 2007, Right, you're you're buying groceries, and your bag boy is a mortgage broker, also, and he gives you his card, and and everybody's a realtor, and people are buying six condos, and we could see what the malinvestments were going into in that cycle. A lot of it was housing related, not all of it, but certainly a lot of it. And so you've just noted what some of the where some of that money goes into and so when you look at all those jobs that then have to handle the inflationary currency those are those are types of malinvestment right those are places what you don't want is a job that's in one of these malinvestment type areas because you're going to be one of the ones that loses a job as soon as the bubble starts to pop i mean for a regular person and they want to see, show me the malinvestment, where should they look during this cycle? Well, the easiest place to look is in the uh, COVID uh, Fed $5 trillion dump uh, that happened beginning in 2020. Uh, it changed our patterns of consumption, employment, production, everything along the way. And so, you know, the all the streaming services and delivery services, all of those sort of uh, exploded upward. Um, you know, we all of a sudden, we went from zero streaming services or one streaming services to having a dozen different uh, streaming services. So that's the sort of the, the hallmark of the end of this bubble was the COVID Fed inspired ultra boom that we uh, experienced. And, but of course, the boom had been already going on. Uh, you know, we had experienced a boom in the teens and we're just going into a correction in 2019 and 2020 when all of that happened and reignited the boom. So we're not really sure. It, it's it's rare in history when the Fed creates a bubble, starts to let it correct, and then reverses course and creates a double bubble, in essence. So uh, there's a lot of uncertainty 
in addition to the normal uncertainty that is inspired by the Austrian business cycle theory, but uh, we do know that in general, it's finance and technology uh, that is where the Fed's monetary stimulus gets plugged into, uh, as well as the government itself, of course. The government uh, at the state and federal level right now are more bloated, really, than they've ever been in history. So I think and I hope that the biggest correction actually is in the size, spending, and employment in government. Uh, as a matter of fact, right now, um, the Fed had um, – the federal government was sort of inundated with revenues and borrowed money. And if you look at the state governments that can't borrow money, they're really dealing with the problem of having too much money right now. They're giving money back to taxpayers. They're spending it on crazy programs. Um, and, you know, during the full f force of the correction or the crisis, uh, we should expect a lot of cutbacks in terms of government spending and government employment. So that's the silver lining to this story. Well, I think maybe just the last issue then is I just... <sighs> The, there's a left-wing narrative, and I was just reminded of this. It was yesterday or the day before. The Wall Street Journal had an article on saying that the Fed, the reason the Fed is now continuing to raise rates is because they're basically they're trying to stick it to the working man. So there's this there's this narrative about how the reason that they want to cause that they want they the Fed people want to cause unemployment, presumably is because there's rising wages. So the idea is that these companies don't like paying higher wages. And so they call upon the Fed then to raise interest rates so it causes unemployment. Um, and so that really, when the Fed enters a hiking cycle, the real cause of this is to help out industry to cut wages. I mean, there's so many things wrong with this, this narrative <laughs> that we could spend a whole episode on it later. But I, yeah. I mean, what is the what is the number one problem with that narrative, right? I mean, I guess it's just it's because we're just looking out and all, and we're just fixating on the fact that they're raising rates, right? And so we're just ignoring everything that came before it, in terms of the boom. And I mean, so should that be our proper orientation? Is that when we see a bust, when we see a a rate hiking cycle, we should be thinking just more in terms of well, let's look back at what happened and why we have to cut, why we have to let rates go up now. Like there's this feeling that the rates were at a perfectly normal level and now we're just we're just forcing them up. I mean, it's actually the reverse, right? Like they would be higher otherwise. Oh, that's that's so true, Ryan. Um, the left never gives up. They never get in. They never take a day off. It doesn't matter how easy. I mean, they were complaining about uh, the Fed and its stubbornness when interest rates were zero. So they never give up. They never give in. They never take a day off uh, from pushing their agenda. And I just wish that people who were in the know and in the right uh, would be just as fixated on these issues and press the issue forward in the right direction all the time. 
Um, that's and I, and I think that that's possible moving forward. I think more people realize that we need a definitely need to change the system. It's not working for almost everybody. And so we need to keep the pressure on during the looming crisis uh, to change the institutions, to have fundamental reform of our government and the central bank and our monetary system uh, moving forward. So the one thing we can learn from the left is their intransigence. Uh, in terms of pursuing their goals, and we need to be uh, have a similar mindset that uh, just little minor reforms are good enough, or just dealing with the um, the, the budget uh, that's on the agenda right now. You know, getting through the debt ceiling limit—that's uh, not enough. That's only step one. Uh, of a long journey towards real monetary reform. All right. Well, thank you, Mark Thornton, a senior fellow here at the Mises Institute. Be sure and check out his Minor Issues podcast. It's a short podcast he does regularly, keep people abreast of economic news and movements in the business cycles. And uh, be sure and come back next week. I'm sure Tho will be back next week uh, for our next episode of Radio Rothbard. And we'll see you next time.